Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New, on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um, more importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ezra Rashko, who is Associate Professor of History at Montclair State University. We'll be speaking about a fascinating new OUP book called The Nature of Endangerment in India, Tigers, Tribes, Extermination and Conservation, 1818 to 2020. Ezra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Raj. Thanks, Dr. Balkaran. It's really wonderful to be here. And, uh, you know, I've really appreciated this series by the New Books Network and your work in particular. It's a great service, a great archive that you're creating, all these new books. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ezra, unlike the vast majority of my podcast guests, this is not our first rodeo by any stretch of the imagination. We haven't been in touch in years, but... Uh, why don't you share a little bit about how we met, how we know each other? Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, apparently it was 2009. Uh, just refresh my memory about that. If, if you can uh, believe it. I think 2008, 2009, that sounds right. For sure it was in my master's year. So one of those years. Yeah, um, it was just as I was finishing grad school in London. And uh, I think I had worked as some sort of teaching fellow at that point already, but then got my uh, first job as a full-time lecturer at the University of Virginia the following fall. So it's pretty easy for me to place that uh, right there chronologically in my career. And uh, in the intermezzo, uh, I I, uh, spent some of the summer doing uh, field work amongst the communities that I work and also then um, spent part of that summer with this Jane Studies program, a religious studies program, um, where we we traveled all over Northern India and Central India really visiting uh, pretty incredible Jane sites, uh, statues of Mahavir, et cetera, at the forts in, in Gwalior and Mm. elsewhere around Madhya Pradesh um yeah it was a rich experience actually come to think of I should probably have someone from the IJHS on the podcast rich experience uh lots of exposure to um uh then academics in the field we even had um uh S. Janey uh guest lectured with us among others and uh access to practitioners Jane aesthetics um, and of course, you know, just a group of people that, you know, you kind of meet and click and then all these adventures in between all the training. And it was, it was, it was great. It was good times, actually. It was a really um, intense time and we got to know each other really well. Yeah, we did. And it was, it was, you know, I was a lowly master student. So thank you for indulging me. <laughs> Lecture Rasko at the time. But then, then you went on to do some uh, pretty great things so far, and I'm, I'm expecting more as well. It's, it's, it's incredible. Well, I'll try not to disappoint you. Um, tell me something. 
what's the backstory to this book? How did you become interested in this topic? You know, well, uh, I guess niche. Yeah, it, um, there, there's different ways I could tell this story. You know, like any good narrative, uh, like any good history, there are different versions of it. Um, and you wonder why we got along be, so well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, one might be going back to that summer. Um, we all had to write a sort of end paper for our Jane Studies program, ISJS program. And, and I wrote mine on, on Jane endangerment discourse, which uh, I, was, I was actually then encouraged to um, publish by some of the, the leaders of, of the program. And that went into EPW. A uh, few years later, I think, I, I finally actually went around and just published the pretty much the exact paper that I'd written that summer, um, where I really looked at the this discourse of the, uh, the way that minority communities in general, but the Jain community in particular, this religious minority of just a few million people in India, uh, you know, express their concern about minority status in by you know speaking of their their vanishment their disappearance their their endangerment as you know modernity sweeps away tradition and people stop you know traditional practices that have been you know passed on from generation to generation and um and and also even looked at the the way that the school framed the rhetoric uh, of endangerment and its own urgency in protecting uh, Jain heritage, culture, and religion. Um, but that, that's just one version. I mean, another was that uh, back in my grad school days, I started writing a uh, history of hunting and conservation from below amongst Beel and Gond, Adivasi communities in Western and Central India. And at that point, I was reading a lot of colonial texts, reading the colonial archive, a lot of big game hunting books. And I found that these uh, colonial big game hunters were often describing uh, the local communities that they worked with, these Beel and Gand Adivasi, who we now call Adivasi communities. Of course, the term Adivasi hadn't been invented yet in the 19th century, but that's another issue. And they basically um, weren't very concerned at all about endangered species, right? They were hunting big game like carnivores, like tigers. Um, you know, they weren't just hunting them, they were seeking to eradicate them as, as vermin species, as dangerous beasts, wild beasts that were, you know, preying upon poor people in the countryside, etc. And they, but instead, they were actually talking about these tribal communities as disappearing, as vanishing, as threatened with extinction. And I was working, well, I began my PhD anyway, working with uh, David Arnold, who was you know, a founding member of the Subaltern Studies Collective. And um, so I was really interested in the way that uh, you know, marginalized communities frame their own experience and their own agency and whether you could extract that from the colonial archive or not. Um, 
is, is still a question in my mind. But I, I really wanted to hear what these people themselves had to say about their experience, about these deep sort of existential questions about their survival, et cetera. And, um, you know, most of my sources were also in English. So this was a great chance to go to India, to, to work in the field, to use my, my language skills, my Hindi. And I picked up a little bit of some local dialects in Madhya Pradesh by now. But um, mostly um, to, uh, you know, really understand my subject, it took a long time, a lot of field work, and, and my thoughts on the issue have really developed over the years as well. Tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about the field work in terms of what does that look like? Um, what sorts of conversations and settings and access? What was that process like for you? Yeah, okay. Um, well, getting my feet on the ground initially back in the mid-2000s when I started this kind of oral history field work was always a little bit tough. You show up in a new place, um, you're trying to make some connections uh, on the ground. Uh, but I, I got really lucky in uh, Pachmari, in, uh, which is a colonial, was a colonial hill station in Madhya Pradesh, um, highest point in Madhya Pradesh in the Satpuras is up there. And um, I met some uh, uh, great people when I was just hiking around in the forest, checking out this area. There was, uh, I don't name any of my informants and in the book it's easier because I'll just like, you know, insert a letter instead of it their name, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try to keep this nameless here. Um, and uh, this gentleman was out uh, hiking with his uh, two dogs and one of them accidentally, I guess, caught and killed a baby uh, wild boar, um, jungly sewer. And, um, and then, um, you know, as I sat there sort of talking to him about that and he was asking me, what am I doing walking around in the forest by myself? Uh, I'm like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out how to go over to those villages over there. <laughs> um, he uh, um, was like, oh, I know all the paths around here. I mean, he didn't get there, there exactly eventually. He got there. Um, but uh, then some other people that he knew came by and they were actually carrying Moa liquor up to Pachmari to sell in, uh, in the town, in the bazaar, illegally, of course. Uh, you know, they're carrying it on their backs, these heavy jugs up this steep mountain path and all they're wearing is flip-flops. And, um, and so then we all like sit down and have a drink <laughs> and, uh, start, uh, you know, people just start talking and telling you things and eventually you go uh, and visit them and um, hear about how their village is being kicked out of the forest because uh, the forest department, even though uh, Pachmari is now being declared a biosphere reserve, which is supposed to integrate cultural and biological diversity, uh, they're being evicted from the forest um, 
and uh, you know their forest villages are being cleared out, and um, and so you you start to wonder. I mean, the obvious thing to think is, oh my God, they're they're losing everything. They're losing their culture, their way of life, their forest homes, and that's sort of the initial premise. I have to admit that I entered in like start say around two thousand five into the field with. Um, because, you know, I'd been exposed mainly to this kind of activist rhetoric from groups like Survival International that say, you know, um, we have to save the tribal peoples of India and that they're um, the, be the best conservationists and that their cultures will be lost without their forests. And so, uh, you know, I was quite surprised especially in Pachamari, less so in other places, but especially in Pachamari, eventually to hear that a lot of people actually wanted to move out of the forest, that they were sick of living there for various reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, that added a layer of complexity to this story that, um, you know, has taken me a long time to grapple with. What would you say? Oh, actually, let me ask a, a question. What's an Adivasi? Yeah, okay. So I'm not really interested myself in defining these communities. Like, I feel like, you know, there's been a long history of colonial anthropology and white guys trying to define who other communities are and what they are. Um, uh, and, but I am interested in the history of discourses, right? And I can tell you all about the history of the creation of the term Adivasi and how um, that was from the get-go a pretty political category and has evolved over time to take on different connotations and meanings. And um, so, like I said earlier, in the 19th century, this term just didn't exist, right? Uh, it was really coined in the early to mid 20th century during um, India's independence struggle. And uh, the first groups you really see using that term come out of what's now like Jharkhand and uh, there's the Adivasi Mahasabha of the 1930s. Um, and um, sometimes uh, I think mistakenly uh, Gandhi G. Mahatma Gandhi even attributed this term to uh, Guria. No, excuse me, no, that's not correct. Um, but he, uh, no, he, he attribu attributed it to uh, Thakur, um, Thakur Baba, and um, A.V. Thakur. And, um, but it wasn't Thakur who, who came up with the term. Um, but it was started, started to get circulated in that period. And Gandhi himself had all sorts of different uh, terms that he liked to use, tried to popula popularize for these communities, Giri Jans, um, et cetera. And, um, you know, at this time, a whole bunch of different uh, terms uh, started to um, arise. But Adivasis uh, stuck, I think, because it was. Um, very practical way of describing this status 
that people saw for themselves as Adi being like the first or original and Vasis dwellers or inhabitants or citizens of the land, right? And it's, it's pretty equivalent uh, to the term indigenous, autochthonous. Um, First Nations. First Nation, absolutely. Um, but this has also then therefore become a pretty disputed category or way of describing these peoples because, um, you know, there's a lot of people on the Hindu right in particular who don't like the idea that anybody else is more indigenous to India than they are, right? Uh, Hindus have had a culture going back 3,000 or so, you know, however many years, if you count the Indus Valley civilization more. Um, and, uh, and so the government of India hasn't embraced this term. And in fact, they've rejected a whole bunch of um, international conventions on the rights of indigenous peoples uh, because they uh, don't recognize any group as more indigenous than they the Hindus and the mainstream are. Um, and so uh, on the Hindu right, one term that's preferred is Vanvasi. And that literally means, could be said to mean forest dweller. Um, and um, there's been this whole long discourse uh, on what you could call the Hindu right, though they didn't necessarily call themselves in the early to, that in the early to mid 20th century, um, that um, these are just backwards Hindus who have lost their way in the forest and need to be reincorporated into the mainstream um, and need to be assimilated essentially or integrated into um, you know, the nation and its economy and its politics. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you for, for addressing that question. Um, and I really uh, uh, appreciate the reframe of, you know, you're providing knowledge on the, the historicity of terminology versus essentializing in, in uh, any peoples. And, 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 and. Right. so uh, one of the ironic things about the, the last point you made about uh, the backwards forest, well, this is that one of my great fascinations, as you probably well know I study the epics and the Puranas. Mm -hmm. One of my great fascinations is, uh, at least in the literary imagination, the forest is a locus of higher ed for exiled kings, <laughs> where they go and they become refined and they become dharmic. And they, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating the ways in which um, the forest setting um, can be conceived of and, and presented. Right. Can I just say, you know, uh, so the book is really a history of these sorts of discourses about these communities and the way that the communities have been framed, um, rather than trying to me again define them myself. And, um, you know, going back to the Ramayana, etc. Uh, they were often called Rakshasas, at least according to people like Ramala Tapur. Uh, I, I, I tried to ask uh, Ramala, I met her once uh, in New York City. And uh, we were, uh, after she gave a talk, we were at a meal together. And um, I said, so how do you know from the Ramayana that 
the Adi, uh, you know, that who we call Adivasis today, or who we called Rakshasas in the past. And I didn't get a very clear answer. She said, oh, you know, because they had beady eyes and claws. And I was like, but that doesn't really prove that, <laughs> you know, um, but, but th this whole idea of, you know, going back to the myth or controversy over the Aryan invasion theory that it was like main, you know, for thousands of years since uh, the origins of uh, Vedic uh, civilization uh, that pushed um, people that we now call Adivasis into the forests and into the hills and drove them um, out of the plains and that then they were demonized literally in, you know, these texts as um, again, Rakshasas, et cetera. Uh, that's not really what I, I get into in the book. Uh, I, I don't read the relevant ancient languages, et cetera. Um, but it, it's, I think it is important noting that kind of starting place and the, those kinds of controversies about um, you know, the history of, of tribal identity as well. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of fascinating themes there. Um, you know, what are we taking as an historical question or historical data versus what are we taking as a literary or narrative? Or, you know, do we leave anything to the mythic imagination? Do we assume that every every element of of, of uh, religious thought or or, or or literature is 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 rooted in a, in a, in a reality? Is there nothing to be said about? Uh, the inner life traumatized through narratives, et cetera, et cetera. But less about these uh, intrigues and more well, about your you book. Talk more about that. Well, I was going to say sure. more about your book. Yeah. What would you say is the central aim, gist argument uh, of the book? Okay. Um, so the, there are a, a couple, I would say, maybe two main ones I could I could focus on. Um, First of all, just starting more generally with the concept or literally the nature of endangerment as in the title, um, that the term endangered endangerment is kind of a loaded term, right? Um, it has all sorts of uh, implications, complex implications, um, controversial implications, especially for when it comes to um, uh, naming or defining or describing the experiences of indigenous peoples, uh, Adivasis, tribal peoples, they're, as they're variously called in the Indian context. And, and so I, I sort of start with the premise that the term um, endangered is, is just an adjective and can be applied to literally just about anything, right? Um, silly things like the latest flavor of candy bar that has gone you know, under and isn't being produced anymore can be called endangered, threatened with extinction or something. Um, but uh, you know, more controversially, like in India, Hindu nationalists might sometimes describe, you know, the status of Hindus as endangered by, you know, various minority communities or something. And so, um, you know, sometimes things that are being described as endangered are not really endangered at all. Um, 
And so, and, and sometimes they really are. So I'm not trying to say, you know, I think everybody wants to reduce this to, so are Adivasis endangered or are they not? But it, it's not that simple. I'm not trying, you know, if anything, the goal is to it's, kind of create it's a, a discourse. It's a discourse of endangerment that I right. feel your interest is. In. Right. And I'm, I'm trying to replace simple narratives with more complex ones and then try to provide a more nuanced picture of this. But um you know, there are real problems with referring to indigenous peoples as endangered. Um, so these are the same communities that have historically often, um, you know, really suffered from racist dehumanizing analogies, right? Uh, comparisons to uh, dangerous wild beasts in, in co the colonial imaginary. And uh, now they're being compared very often and quite literally in a lot of activist discourse um, to endangered forms of wildlife to, that need to be protected and need to be saved. And so calling a, a community that has been like, you know, struggling for rights and for recognition, um, endangered has, has all these uh, implications because when people hear the term endangered these days, especially or the term endangerment, they mostly think of endangered species, right? And so, um, so that's sort of one starting point. The other main issue that I have or that I'm dealing with though is that actually, if you if you look at the history of who and what was being described as endangered, um, you know, as, as anthropocentric as uh, Europeans, you know, definitely were through most of the modern era. Um, they were definitely describing people as being threatened with extinction, uh, vanishing, disappearance, and, and th threatened with endangerment. Um, threatened with extinction more, um, you know, centuries before really they ever talked about uh, environmental endangerment or wildlife endangerment. And so you can go back all the way to the origins of the colonial encounter really, go back to uh, just after Christopher Columbus supposedly discovered the new world and see people like Bartolome de las Casas who was described as the first protector of Indians uh, in uh, Hispaniola in 1516, um, who there's a long historiographical tradition about, um, see, uh, which talks about how he was trying to save the tribes from extinction. You know, um, in, the, in the 1700s, Voltaire talked about how Bartolome de las Casas was trying to save uh, uh, Hispaniola's tribes from extinction. Um, and that's, again, you know, centuries before there was any recognition that extinction even existed uh, amongst, um, you know, non-human species. And that was the discovery, scientific discovery of extinction of, of non-human species is something that I discussed in the book a little bit. It really begins at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, 
there, there's all sorts of famous figures in that. I, I'm not writing the history of you know evolutionary biology here, but um, it, I, the concern for um, vanishing or disappearing non-human species really only um, picks up, uh, you know, following the age of Darwin and then in the, the 20th century. Um, before that time, um, as I just said, uh, tigers and other carnivores were certainly not seen as endangered in India. They were seen as endangering the lives of humans. They were seen as vermin, dangerous wild beasts to be eradicated. And so then a big part of that argument as well is that this language of endangerment that starts first and is really prolific um, in describing tribal communities, endangered tribal peoples, uh, you know, um, primitive races as the colonists called them, uh, vanishing races, then gets actually mapped on to the language of endangered species and environmentalism. And so uh, it, there's a shift from this anthropocentric perspective to a more biocentric one um, that comes, you know, later in the Anthropocene. Could you say a bit regarding this, this uh, question of survival, if you will, say a bit about how um, Adivasis themselves, at least uh, in your experience, in your fieldwork, would uh, qualify, characterize, you know, think about, discuss this, this issue in their own terms. Right. Um, so I, I've mostly worked with various Adivasi communities, Peel and Gan communities in particular, um, who, you know, are really large heterogeneous communities, millions and millions of people we're talking about, like over 16 million people in the case of the Beals. And I've obviously not worked with 16 million people. I've worked with some slim, uh, you know, sample of that. Um, and mostly amongst communities that are facing conservation and development-induced displacement or who have already been moved into resettlement, because that's where a lot of the language of endangerment these days, a lot of endangerment discourse from the media and from activists is focusing. And so what I've found is that most, you can call them sort of average Adivasis who are being uh, displaced or considering moving out of their form, their forest homes or have already moved from their forest, former forest homes, don't typically amongst themselves, I'm trying to be careful here, frame their experience as, you know, uh, what I call this meta-narrative of endangerment discourse, this, this major overarching view of cultural loss and decline and that they themselves and their communities are going extinct. Um, you know, they have a lot of problems. There's a lot of struggles, like everyone in the world. I mean, the world has struggles and, you know, the Buddha said life is suffering, but they have more than most, certainly, um, I could probably say more than you or I. And um, they, they talk a lot about their problems and about their issues. But 
it, it's not usually the case that they will then come out and, and just like make big broad statements like, oh, my, my culture is disappearing. Uh, my, uh, my community is becoming extinct. Um, I'm, but they will make those statements if there's a major activist campaign involved with them that, uh, you know, uh, pushes them to kind of describe their issues that way. Um, they, they will make the statements if you ask them loaded questions, point blank, is that happening to you? Um, they um, sometimes, sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll say, no, my culture is strong. My traditions are strong. What are you, um, are you talking about? And, and it, there's a diversity of answers. Um, and I would say just because people don't necessarily describe their own tradition in that terms just amongst themselves or on a daily basis, that doesn't mean the issue is not there either. Um, but it, it isn't primarily the way that I've found that communities self-identify. You know, actually, just to say one more word about that, communities themselves, amongst themselves, when they're talking to each other on a daily basis, real communities, let's say, they don't refer to themselves as Adivasi either, necessarily. They refer to themselves as Basava, as Tarviyev's Paura, um, et cetera, as their, their various local community names, and they differentiate themselves, you know, that way from one another. Um, and so there's a lot of these outside discourses, they're big, you know, everybody kind of wants to be able to understand like in a quick and simple way what other communities are about. And uh, from, you know, the outside world, they're Adivasis. From the outside world, they're endangered Adivasis very often. And, you know, that's true, uh, whether it's people coming from, um, you know, urban backgrounds, middle-class backgrounds in India, um, or, you know, Western global activists. Um, but, uh, you know, on the ground, the situation is a little bit more complex than that. And people have pretty, I would say, more nuanced perspectives. And, um, you know, there's, uh, and, and there is a lot of pride in tradition and a lot of, um, feelings also that you know they're keeping their traditions alive and yeah light, things are changing um, but that doesn't mean that you know um actually I, i've lived in the gulf as well in uh in abu dhabi for some years and uh you know uh, in uh, the gulf people are very proud of their tribal heritage and tradition, but they're also driving, you know, Lamborghinis and Maseratis and building huge skyscrapers. And so they don't think that their religion and their culture is extinct. There's a lot of questions about it and about what like all this modernity and cultural change means for them. But every community has, um, you know, experiences change. Uh, Woody Allen once joked, you know, change equals death. Oh, I hate change. Um, but, uh, you know, understand the nature of social change in these communities is really different from a, just a simple declaration that they are in danger of extinction. Yeah, one of the, um, one of the 
takeaway, one of the key points and takeaways, I think it's is transferable to a number of projects and, and subfields and even disciplines, is that the discourse of the other and of the margins are very different when you're in the very margins themselves, where actually it's there's a centrality of the narrative. This is where we are. This is the center of our world. This is how we see our world. We're not perceiving ourselves from the margins. Um, so there's that toggling between you know othering and marginalization uh, of others versus a self-identification or a self-adjudication uh, or self-expression, uh, uh, which isn't sidestepping issues. It's it's framing it in a different way. And the, the other point that comes to me time and time again is 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 you know as we're talking now, but even as I was looking at your chapters, is um, one of the fundamental distinctions is a narrative that's empowering versus a narrative that's disempowering mm -hmm. a narrative of people who need to be saved rescued helped uh, a narrative that that's imbued with some level of um condescension even pity even you know they, you know th th they need us to rescue them and it's somewhat egotistical in this in a sense versus a narrative of empowerment where i own my 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 agency you know i own my circumstance there are some real threats to our survival and questions but I'm not disempowered. I don't have that narrative of needing to be saved. And that's one of the points that kind of comes to me as you're talking that I, I find fascinating. You know, absolutely. That's, I, I really appreciate that. That's really deep, actually. Um, you know, at first, when you started talking, I was just going to make some sort of almost a glib joke that back in the day, I wanted to start a center for peripheral studies. Um, but uh, isn't that religious studies? Then no, never mind. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> All the humanities and social studies sciences are these days, my friend, unfortunately. Um, but uh, you know, there's all this discourse of the humanities and social sciences being endangered as well. But us, you know, poor marginalized academics. Um, no, uh, more seriously, um, I I think you're absolutely right. It's about trying to understand people's agency and their own perspective and their you know the celebrations of their own their own culture um and pride in their own culture um at the same time um you know recognizing these issues of precarity and everything um but uh i guess the issue is is sort of one of self determination, right? If if Adivasi communities um, choose to explicitly recognize themselves as endangered um, and and want to represent themselves that way, um, and uh, to the outside world, if not necessarily always to themselves, um, and and use that in their their struggle. Uh, um, struggles to improve improve their lot in life and their communities um, and their cultures you know more power to them um i i think um i i think the problem really has come though because it's been the you know people with a kind of a white savior complex or uh, you know, missionaries who think that they were going to save the tribes by saving their souls, who came in with this, these notions of, of vanishing Indians, vanishing, you know, the other vanishing Indian, and all sorts of stereotypes about 
these communities who they were going to uplift or reform or save in various you know, ways that were often deeply problematic uh, that I'm trying to address first and foremost and, and um, you know, try in, to situate that vis-a-vis uh, -vis these communities, at least what I can gain, have been able to gain from these communities, uh, you know, impressions um, of those narratives and also of um, their own experience. Fascinating. Now, let's close with this question. Do you, um, is this work that you are or hope to continue in some way? What's, what's sort of next for you? Um, it's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I love this kind of work. Um, it's been, you know, my life work for many years now. Um, and I, I think I have various, this, I think that specifically the concept or nature of endangerment I've, I've worked with enough. Um, but um, I, I found recently some really fascinating archival material on um, uh, the first national park ever in, um, the, in Africa, in the Belgian Congo, actually, um, where in the 1920s, there was this whole um, slew of actually, frankly, American eugenicists who went and said that we are going to, you know, try to save not only the gorillas, but the pygmies who are threatened with extinction. Um, and I had this idea of maybe doing a kind of an ed global edited volume um, about national parks and other protected areas that were specifically formed for the purposes of protecting indigenous cultures. Um, and there was one famous case uh, in, in Brazil. Uh, there's uh, a case in Indonesia. There's this whole history of um, uh, a man named Paul Sarazan, an anthropologist, Naturschutz, um, the idea of anthropological nature protection um, that was coming out of the early 20th century and the idea of creating uh, nature reserves for indigenous peoples. And um, in fact, the first ever call for a, a, a national park uh, in the U.S. context by a man named George Catlin uh, called for the creation of um, a park where they could preserve man and beast, uh, it, Indians galloping on horseback in their native attire amidst the fleeting herd of bison was the good, I would say, a good paraphrase of the quote. Um, and um, basically collecting those histories of this problematic attempt to preserve indigenous cultures, specifically in national parks around the world. Um, I think that, that might be something I'd, I'd like to pursue. So if anybody listening to this has a, a paper on one of those kinds of parks in particular, <laughs> you could uh, please consider reaching out to me. 
Excellent. I really appreciate that call to action to the audience. Every once in a while, sort of slip in, you know, so any grad students, this is an area, you know, whether it's manuscriptology or whatever, you know, but um, no, this is, that's a great, plugging uh, the, the new book, but plugging the even newer one that may. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's, that's a great invitation, an invitation to contact you for, for discourse on, on, mm-hmm. on, um, uh, interests and scholarly interests, uh, etc. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Be more yeah. So, so of course, your your um, profile is always linked. Uh, profiles are always linked to the New Books Network site, so that'll be great. So feel free to contact Dr. Ezra Rashko uh, for anything related to the topic. Um, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Fantastic speaking with you. And we really do have to have a conversation more than every five years or so. Um, For those of you listening, we've been speaking about a brand new OUP book uh, called The Nature of Endangerment in India. Until next time, keep well, keep safe, keep listening, and keep contemplating narratives of the center and the periphery and maybe how they cross-pollinate. Take care.